We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by a returning guest. Not only a returning guest, I think he's our uh, most returning guest. And it's William Kajani, who is the elections politics and policy analyst for Star Sports. Welcome back to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be back with you again. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back again. Um, So the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is this. Uh, November this year, we'll be seeing the uh, US presidential election. Uh, between, presumably, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. What are the odds at the moment looking like for the outcome of that election? So we have Joe Biden as an 8 to 13 favourite. That's 61.73% in percentage chances. And we have Donald Trump at 11 to 8. That's 42.02%. That's a bit of a squeeze from... I think probably the last two months because Biden had been polling extremely well through the summer. Um, we're talking properly landslide proportions and he still very much is polling. Even if you account for phenomena like the race narrowing, which it does by two points in the stretch, give or take every presidential election, he's still got a very comfortable lead. Um, Trump is improving in some polls. Um, but if you're wanting a head to head, then let's compare him with Hillary Clinton, which is the head-to-head everybody's worried about, and probably, to be fair, the best head-to-head given he's facing an incumbent. Biden is still polling better than Clinton was. He's even polling better than her peak lead over Trump. Um, 7.5 points was her peak lead over Trump. That's as a polling average. Biden is doing slightly better than that as we speak, albeit um, different situation, no convention balance etc so at the moment it does look like biden is going to win the presidential election but of course people have been preparing both the democrats and the republicans uh, for if there is a a repeat of 2016 where the democrats win the popular uh, vote but trump manages to uh, win uh, the electoral college uh, vote how likely do you think that is to happen do you think that we could see a, a repeat as of 2016 as we go closer into the election? Well, to try and give you some markets perspective on it, um, we go five to four, so that's 44.44% that the Republican candidate, whoever it is, um, in all eventualities would win. So it's five to four, essentially. And we're nine to two that the... Republicans actually win the popular vote. So 18.18% probability that they win the popular vote, reverse that around, essentially 84% chance that some of the Democrats would win um, the popular vote again. And I think, to be honest with you, you'd have to expect, um, more likely than not, I think the Democrats to win the popular vote, either fought in a normal Scenario. Obviously, this isn't it, but just to give listeners some sort of context. Um, how likely is it that we have an exact repeat of 2016? I'd probably want bigger than 9 to 2 on that, but I don't think it's completely impossible once again. Um, we also have to remember that we don't really know for certain, for the first time 
probably since World War Two, that this election will just go ahead, that it will happen, right? For a number of reasons. Um, obviously, mainly public health related, um, but also worryingly um, despotic reasons, namely the fact that the current president is now actively sabotaging or at least intending to make it as difficult as possible for people to vote without going to the polls. Um, and this will take place in November, where many U.S. winters are harsh. And voting in the U.S. is not the easiest of tasks anyway. There are very long lines, really quite often, especially in key districts and key states. So with all that in mind, what the popular vote looks like can't be taken for granted. Um, yeah, we just don't know for certain. You you don't know in the same way that you might have been able to say somebody, if we're having this conversation four years ago, you know, we'd know roughly, I think, what we'd expect to have in terms of turnout. Mm. We'd know probably when to expect the results, right, wouldn't we? And mm. we'd be able to make some sort of judgment um, on who might win the popular vote or not. Now, I mean, we are eight to one, just eight to one, that the election doesn't take place in 2020 you know mm. that is unprecedented now i know it would take a lot you need both houses of congress to agree to it um but i think when you're thinking about who will win the electoral vote consider what the electoral vote will look like and what the turnout will look like and what that process will look like especially if the usps or the us postal service i should say is gutted as it's quite likely because there's 85 days to go but that's a lot of time for things to happen, but not much time to get this process set up. Hmm. Um, now, as you mentioned, there has obviously uh, been, it, it would seem, uh, from the, the Trump camp, attempts to interfere uh, through the US postal system and through other means with the result. If we do see a 2016-like uh, result, and there are clear indications that the president has in some way attempted to meddle with the election. Do you think that the Biden camp would start legal proceedings? And if they do, how successful do you think that they would be? Number one, absolutely, they will start legal proceedings. Absolutely. Um, 2000 is the best example to go to. Um, and I think it's really not impossible. You see 2000, but on a more audacious and larger scale. Although that said, going back in hindsight, 2000. Again, there's a lot of partisan views on this, and I'm not going to claim to be an oracle of all things electoral law in America, but it was a pretty brazen grab. And I think any reasonable person should be able to see that. That's my opinion. Um, we are just four to one, so 20%, that Trump loses the election and refuses to leave office. We define that, by the way, for refusing to accept the result publicly and also refusing to attend the inauguration. Um, but if there was to be direct electoral inf interference, which I think is becoming more likely, I think it's already happened in a way. Yes, expect legal proceedings. How successful those proceedings be? I think if you're rooting for Biden in that sense, I think you can have some reasonable amounts of hope. Um, Trump's not had a great time with the courts, it has to be said. You know, the cultural war has gone the Conservatives' way in America, I think, but that's the Supreme Court level, and even then not all the time. Um, Trump has been battered by district and state courts. Um, 
so have many of those more, I think, extreme right causes. So long story short, I think that if there was to be really clear, obvious again, the election, I do think Trump would be in trouble. But then again, it's unprecedented. And so many things that you'd have thought would have taken down a normal president haven't really taken down a normal president, although he's not normal. <laughs> um, now, we are today, supposedly, expecting Joe Biden to announce his running mate. Now, first thing I'd like to ask uh, regarding this is, why do you think he's spent so long picking his running mate? And secondly, uh, how important do you think um, his pick will be to the ticket? So Joe Biden has history with this. He is a deliberator, um, quite a big one, really. And he's taken the methodical approach to this ledge, which is understandable to see. Um, basically a direct contrast to the sort of insane and mad chaos of Trump. Um, and I understand that approach for his campaign team and I think it's working. I think it's working better with four years of Trump and especially the coronavirus crisis in the background as well. Um, so with that in mind, I understand why they're willing to wait. Um, I also think in general um, that there's reason they're taking so long with the vice presidential pick. Um and there's a really good article from Hans Nichols and Alexi McCammond of Axios on this. But long story short, um, there's one aim they want here. Don't let the running mate hurt you. As long as he comes out neutral or better, they will consider that vice presidential pick a success. Um, in terms of how important do I think it is, I think it's really more important for two reasons. Number one... Um, there are, and I'm not trying to be mean here, but people have made this an issue anyway. There are worries about Biden's cognitive skills. Um, and also he's a very old president anyway, or he would be a very old president anyway. He's 77. Um, those things go into account. Number two, they want ticket balance as well. Um, what effect do vice presidential candidates have? Um, remains to be seen, but Biden was certainly a very notable vice president himself. Um, and I remember still the effect that Sarah Palin, et cetera, had um, when she came onto the scene. So I think it's definitely something worth getting right. Um, now, the two names that have uh, been floated the most uh, recently in terms of his uh, vice presidential pick have been Susan Rice, who uh, was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and also served as national security adv uh, advisor. And uh, Kamala Harris, who is senator for California and was also uh, attorney general uh, in California. What are your thoughts on uh, these two uh people as picks, these two women as picks, and do you think that there's one out of the two that would help Biden more than the other? Okay, so what luck? We've got odds for this. Um, <laughs> Kamala Harris is the 10 to 11 favourites in this market. Um, we've got more than two contenders, but she's a 10 to 11 favourite at this point. 52.36% chance. Susan Rice is 5 to 2, um, second favourite, 28.57% chance um, in layman's terms. Interesting to note, Gretchen Whitmer, who has reportedly been in contact with the Biden camp in recent days, is a six to one shot 
lurking on the periphery there. Um, that's 14 29%. My feeling is that neither of those top three picks would really hurt him a huge amount. Um, although if he was worried about the left, which I, I've got, I don't really think he is at this point. I don't really think the Democratic Party has been for, gosh, a good few years now anyway. Um, he would probably steer away from Harris. But then again, I don't think there's really a candidate there who's going to get progressive, progressive extremely excited anyway. Um, my feeling actually would be that Susan Rice would be a more natural hand-in-glove fit for Biden in terms of the White House, number one, and probably also the campaign as well, number two. Um, Harris and Biden have similar foreign policy thinking. They hold pretty similar stances broadly to America's place in the world. Um, they would have National Security Council experience together. They'd have high-level meeting experience together. They'd also have a working relationship as well, which wouldn't need a lot of time to get started. If Biden wants continuity, he probably goes, I think, for Rice over Harris. Harris, however, is probably more high-profile, um, probably also better for a sort of law and order image, if that's the sort of fight he wants to get into, and it's certainly the sort of fight Biden, uh, Trump wants to have. And I also think that... Um, you know, going forward, if Biden wants a big name running mate um, to try and drag some of the attention away from Trump when, you know, you really need that political oxygen, then he'd pick Harris. My pick would be Rice if I was on Team Biden, but that would be because I'd be mainly counting on Biden and his strengths to pull through. So in uh, November, we will also be seeing um, battles uh, uh, for the Senate, uh, the senatorial uh, elections. Uh, now, the Democrats are aiming to retake the Senate. How likely do you think they will be to do that? I think they have a reasonable chance of retaking the Senate based on forecasts I've seen for the Republican performance. So basically sort of flipping those forecasts on their head. Um, roughly speaking, the odds I see for the Republicans to win under 50 seats um, including from a leading UK competitor bookmaker, who I won't name. <laughs> no, no, I will name it. Um, it's Labbrooks, and they're led by the brilliant Matthew Shaddock. They've got 8 to 11 for the Republicans to win under 50 seats. Um, that's 58.14%. That would give the Democrat, uh, Democrats a reasonable chance of taking the Senate. I think it's basically a matter of two things. Number one, um, does the Biden enthusiasm um, rating really stretched to can we just get Trump out or do we want to take it all? Hmm. Um, which potentially, uh, potentially, I think um, could be an issue in the sense that if people get too focused on beating Trump, do you really have the energy for those down ballot races that you need to in the Senate? Hmm. Um, which is generally really, really, really difficult. Senate races, the competitive ones, are extremely difficult to win um, and require a lot of money. Now, the DNC is raising money really well. They're raising money just fine. Um, there should be money to spread down ballots. The issue is twofold. Number one, campaigning and coordinating, and number two, getting the balance right, because we know Republican volunteers will be willing to do that on-the-ground stuff. We know that. Um, is that an issue for Democrats? Depends. People returning to the streets in 
brute force from what I see in America, um, although it's not going that well. My main feeling is that it will be reflected in the presidential race. And if there is a proper blowout for Biden of the sort that models and forecasts are predicting, then we will get, um, I think, a, a Democratic Senate. But um, I think a lot of that will come down to things such as campaigning. Where does the money go? How, how much enthusiasm is there? Um, now, turning uh, to our side of the pond, uh, something that I thought was... Um, Quite interesting. Uh, your betting odds for the uh, next chairman of the BBC. Now, could you uh, walk us through the, the odds that Star have got up for that? Of course I can. So this has been a hot topic in the discourse ever since Rosamund Irwin and Tim Shipman of the Sunday Times led with a story that Andrew Neil and Baroness Morgan, or Nicky Morgan, um, were leading the field to be the BBC's next chairman so basically um the chairman is appointed by the government the government can appoint a bbc chairman um the director general is a different position and the two are sort of meant to work um hand in hand now we've got a new director general tim davy and we've got now a chairperson or chairperson c that he's filling we are six to one andrew neil gets it. We are seven to one Baroness Morgan gets it. Eight to one Amber Rudd, also mentioned by Irwin and Shipman. And nine to one Margot James or Baroness James. Ten to one Martha Fox. Twelve to one George Osborne. Fourteen to one Charles Moore, um, who was apparently mentioned as a, a bit of carrot and stick <laughs> by those <laughs> brief, well briefed in government. And then we're 20s, Fran Unsworth, 20s, Jane Pennell, 25 to 1, Bob Shannon, and 25 to 1, Charlotte Moore. We've also got Jay Hunt at 25 to 1 as well. Um, given these odds and given the people that are, are listed, what, what effect do you think that this will have on the, the future of the BBC if any of these people uh, are chosen as the, the next chair? Um, it's big. This is really, really big. Um, the future of the BBC, I think, is now a question that's at the forefront of the national discourse. Um, it has less defenders than it used to, and those defenders, I think, are also less passionate about it. I think mainly because, and again, I'll get held to this, whatever I say, but a lot of people project their own opinions and their hopes and fears on the BBC. Um, I think also people view it more so now than ever as a sort of key tool in the culture war and a battleground that needs to be won, or at least needs to be fought over as intensely as is possible all of the time. So with that in mind, the next chairman is a really big thing. The corporation's already at a, a number of crossroads. Number one, um, the financial hits it's got to take. Um, the, cut, the cuts have been brutal, unfortunately, and I don't really have much sympathy, actually, with um, current head of news, Fran Unsworth, who's got to go and who's got to, to make those savings purely because um, I think the government screwed the BBC over with the licence fee decision. Mm. Um, and I think the BBC's bearing the brunt of that. Um, and I think also they're trapped in a number of culture fronts as well. Um, but there's also where does the BBC go in the future? Um, it's still a very much loved part of national life, and I believe polling would, you know, bear that out. Mm. But thinking ahead here, 
um, the average age of the BBC's televisual audience is high. It's very high compared to Netflix, very high compared to Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, etc. And also, and this is um, one thing, whilst the BBC has strong engagement with young people online um, and also with podcasts, I don't know if that audience can can be kept together across all the platforms. And I wonder if you'll see a split between the linear television audience, so the sort of person you'd expect to watch um, EastEnders or the, or the news at 10, right, or the Radio 4 or the Today programme or something, or listen to The Archers, uh, but I'm mainly thinking TV, or, you know, watching Portillo's train shows or whatever, you know, tuning into something um, at a linear time, or basically the um, sort of person now who would listen to newscast in the morning and then on a walk or a run whilst doing the dishes, listen to Louis Fru's, um, I think it's Ungrounded, mm-hmm. or who would listen to um, any one of the podcasts that the BBC has, which is clearly marketed to younger people and clearly doing very well. Um, so I think the BBC's had a big crossroads in terms of audience and in terms of um, finances. That's before you get to the sort of cultural stuff, which I think it's caught in a bind on. Because you have, I think, an atmosphere where I think people feel so strongly now, and rightly so in many cases, about so many issues that a paper which, or sorry, an organisation which, like the BBC, is sort of duty-bound to hear both sides out is inevitably going to get clattered in the middle. And we've just seen that, I think, obviously, over the last two years. Going back to the market quickly, my feeling would be that Baroness Morgan at seven to one is a very strong runner mm. um, because, of course, she's been culture secretary. Um, we know that she's in line with Tory thinking on the BBC. Um, that experience probably gives a bit of a sheen to potential application. Mm. Um We've seen her talk about the license fee. We've seen her talk also about the future of broadcasting. And I think those speeches are a foregrounding to her taking some sort of role in this. Um, I also think she'd probably be a pretty uh, comfortable appointment for the government in the sense that they could do it. Um, there wouldn't necessarily be as much reaction to her getting the job as, say, Andrew Neil or somebody else. Um, and they could go on their merry way. Um, but I know I've said so much about the BBC, but <laughs> long story short, I do fear um, I do fear for it in sort of the firm future because there are a number of crossways. And I think one thing, and this would be my one takeaway, is people don't understand the value of the licence fee. Hmm. People love to take, um, I think it's the approximately 160 quid a year or so figure and they love to compare it with Netflix and they love to compare it with Amazon Prime they love to compare it with Disney Plus or whatever mm. um, but that's not the point because with the BBC it's probably worth better comparing it to Sky or BT or Virgin mm. 
in the sense that you're paying this amount of money, but you're getting not only getting two, actually it's four channels, two of them Mm -hmm. 24 hours a day, you're getting seven to eight national radio stations covering any subjects of music you could want. Um, You're then getting an online service, which I think you can say is the equal or better of any in the world. I think also, and whether you agree with the news coverage or not, I'm talking about the breadth and depth of output, um, getting a new subscription that gives you, I think, more value and certainly more volume of reporting than any British newspaper um, or any world newspaper, actually. I think probably it just about beats the New York Times, Washington Post still. You would pay more to have a subscription to one of them than you would license fee for the BBC and you get the rest on top. So when you look at it like that, I think, and this is honestly a hot take of mine that I passionately believe in, <laughs> the BBC license fee is cheap. Mm. It is cheap. In comparative pound-for-pound media terms, it is an absolute steal. It's just that nobody ever thinks about it that way. I don't think people have thought about it that way for quite a few years. And I think if the BBC could reframe the licence fee debate in that fashion, um, they'd give themselves a big hand. But again, maybe the debate is already too poisonous to do that. I don't know. Mm. Um, Moving... uh towards the uh, political scene in the UK for a moment. We're obviously going to be seeing a raft of elections next year, the local elections, the uh, uh, elections in Wales, elections in uh, Scotland, mayoral elections. Uh, What are the sort of like uh, situations of of, of the parties in those uh, different races at the moment? I mean, how are the uh, Labour Party and the Conservative Party looking in the local elections, for example? The Conservatives will be very happy for two reasons, or at this point for two reasons. Number one, Boris Johnson's brand remains, although quite beaten, um, it's not broken. Mm. His general approval ratings are okay for a prime minister. And whilst I, whilst people might say, what the hell are you talking about? He's awful. I'm more thinking um, of his comparisons with Sakir Starmer. And I'm also thinking of the Conservative Party brand, which actually might be the more important point to make here, against um, the Labour Party brand. Now, in a local election, people's views of the parties, um, I think, have a big effect, mainly because there's not as much cut through um, un- not un- until the results at least um, compared to a general election when people are constantly scrutinising um, you know the people at the top mm. now in a head to head against um, Boris Johnson Sakir Starmer will probably feel I think reasonably good so far you know he's got a lot of work to do but so far I think he's managed to and I don't know if the poly will hold up on this, but so far he's managed to cut back, I think, bits of that gap. Um, and at least certainly his approval ratings are higher than Corbyn's. Um, although, again, long time to go. But the problem here for the Labour Party is people don't think differently about Labour as a brand yet. And that's going to take immeasurably more work than it ever would 
um, for people to think about Sakir Starmer um, positively. Now, there are a couple of big caveats. Number one, we're heading into the difficult part economically of coronavirus. Um, that might sound crazy, but at this point, you know, speaking on 10th of August, um, you have, I think, still a few million, you have about 7 million people, I think, on furlough. Um, you've had certainly a spate of job losses yet, um, but most people, as I understand it, are still sort of just about managing. That's not going to be the case in the next couple of months. You are going to see, very unfortunately, um, a lot of redundancies, a lot of businesses will go under, a lot of people will lose jobs that can't be replaced easily, specialist jobs. Uh, I'm thinking, again, the arts, which aren't going to get targeted furlough, mm. um, but also probably won't be allowed to reopen in an economically viable fashion compared to uh, other places such as um, some other parts of the hospitality industry. And that's all going to lead to, unfortunately, a lot of economic hurt and pain. Um, then I think, secondly... You have Brexit, which has been lurking in the background um, and which is going to go on full speed ahead. That's very important for two reasons. Number one, government bandwidth to tackle it. Mm. Uh, now, you can have your views on Brexit as to whether it's good or bad. Um, we're past that. It's happening. I'm not here to try and convince anybody to change their mind about the referendum or to change their mind about whether it's good or bad. We need to focus now on making the relative best of it. The ideal time to do that is not when you've had to rewrite the economic book, rule book just to keep the country afloat. It's also not the ideal time to do that when a service-based economy is going to need to continue social distancing for, let's be honest, at least the next couple of years. That's the odds-on chance um, just to be brutal, just to be brief. A Brexit that um, put our supply chain under real pressure, and remember, they're still dealing with coronavirus, they still will be for a long time, um, is going to be a huge problem. People aren't going to be happy if there's a double whammy of rising prices and also job losses, um, or shortages and also job losses, or shortages and other winter crises. Um, flooding, the normal flu season, NHS backlog, which is now tenfold probably what it was before coronavirus because people haven't come back to hospital quite understandably because they're terrified of going into one of the only places you're guaranteed basically to have the virus around. Um, so all of that, I think, could completely change a government's um, standpoint with its voting public. I think a lot of people will have that brand loyalty to the Conservatives anyway, which, which will carry them through, but I definitely still think there's a place other parties to pounce mm. when the going gets really, really tough. And you can see that with um, Labour's positioning um, in terms of, you know, the jobs, jobs, jobs campaign. You know, you can see where they were positioning themselves. I don't think that will look silly in a couple of months' time, um, although I do think they need to start building their own policy agenda um, 
to give themselves a foot grounding. But my main feeling is right now, if you ask um, a Conservative councillor, they'd say election tomorrow, please. Um, and if you ask Labour councillor, they'd say, let's see what happens in 2021. Um, now, of course, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be seeing elections in Scotland, Scotland uh, Scottish parliamentary elections next year as well. Now, the SNP look like they're going to do fairly well uh, i think i think i think it's uh, fair to say yeah. in the, in in those uh, elections um how well do you think the labor party are going to do how well do you think uh, the conservatives are going to do well to use our old friend the old's book here we are 1 to 20 or 96.15% that the most seats will go to the smp so that means basically in sort of an election scenario we think there is only a 5% chance, or actually less than a 5% chance, that the party with the most seats won't be the SNP. That's how dominant they are currently. Um, we are 12 to 1 on the Tories winning the most seats, and we are 16 to 1 on Labour doing so. Uh, so... Long story short, um, not well. And... There isn't any reason for them to do well at the moment because, purely and simply, this is sort of a reverse effect of Brexit, basically, in the sense that the Conservative coalition was held by Brexit um, in the general election where the Brexit party um, stepped aside and folded the way, where UKIP was incorporated in the Conservative party vote. Um, that's almost sort of the same way in Scotland in the sense that if you want to vote for independence or if you want to vote for Remain, you've got one really, really obvious option, the SNP. That's not, by the way, to be disparaging to anybody um, or any of these political opinions or beliefs. That's just sort of the brutal fact of the way the electorate is um, currently stacking up. My feeling also with Scottish independence, and we have goals on this as well, um, we're 10 to 11 that there is a indirect to before the end of 2025 or we're four to seven that um the scots would vote yes so in percentages um 52.36 indirect to before 2025 four to seven 63.69 that they'd vote yes to it um and i think those odds are reasonable based on where scotland is now because much of the argument for staying within the union was twofold. Um, number one, keeping the position sort of at the high table in Europe. Hmm. And number two, also um, stability as well. It was sold very much, as much as I can remember, as stability. As there was plenty about devolution and plenty of devolution I think has happened although again I wouldn't be wanting to speak for anybody Scottish here um, but since then you have had a torrent of events which have undoubtedly weakened the union and you have to remember that Scots will be watching people in Northern Ireland even if they might not be very pleased with what's happening in terms of the deal with Northern Ireland, I don't know at the moment, um, getting a bespoke treatment and one that is absolutely correct by the way to keep the border open um, 
between Ireland and Northern Ireland, and they they won't have the same in Scotland either. And so many of the arguments that were made five years ago either feel culturally redundant or are basically just being disproven as we speak. Mm. Um, I don't think the economic um, hits and whatever are going to help either. Um, I think coronavirus, even though um, I don't think any country's been flawless on this, I don't think the coronavirus arguments are are going to help Scotland either, um, or sorry, the Tories with the union either on that mark. And I think um, that could play a big, big hand as the rest of the year goes by, especially in terms of reopening. And I think... um, Generally speaking, you've also got a prime minister who, whilst an enthusiastic back of the union, is very much anathema to quite a few Scottish people. Even if you would consider them, you know, nationalists, um, the most convincing argument, I think, for independence, or at least one of them, was always getting away from politicians who, you know, lie and are... Um, deceitful or whatever down south that's the way I think the S&P would frame it mm. this isn't a call out about Boris Johnson or whatever it's just put quite simply um, Boris Johnson isn't I don't think a terribly popular figure in Scotland he's the ideal attacking point um, so I can see independence only gaining more momentum especially um, given that coronavirus and Brexit is putting the union under so much pressure mm. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been uh, great to have you on again, uh, William. And I've got one final question for you. Now, of course, we have um, been all obviously during the pandemic and, uh, you know, having to uh, stay in a lot more uh, than we usually uh, would. Um, and that has obviously had a lot of negative connotations for people. But in, in some instances, some people have found some positive uh, connotations from it, whether it be uh, redecorating the house or, or, or learning a new skill or something like that. So my question to you is, what one positive do you think that you have found out of uh, having to to stay in more? I've actually got more than one positive. Oh. <laughs> um, positive number one is that I've reconnected with the family a lot more because um, I was traveling a lot for my job. Um, I was spending large amounts of time away. I spent most of the election away. Um, I then took a break over Christmas. Um, and, you know, normally speaking, we didn't see each other a lot. Um, but no, it's, it's brought us close together, I think, as a family unit. And um, I, I couldn't thank them enough for what they do for me. Um, the other thing it gave me a chance to do was read, um, as in get down to some proper book reading, which I haven't done for ages. Um, it, and if I could, if I could, I, kn- I know it's really, it's really, really cheeky, but could I possibly recommend a couple of books to read as the podcast? More than happy to let, to, to let you do that. Awesome. Okay, so the first is Not Buying It by Charlotte Henry. Now, admittedly, um, debated listeners might groan a bit um, because you're probably more than more than aware of the dangers of fake news. But this was genuinely a really insightful read. I really enjoyed it. I think it allowed me to refresh my mind a bit. 
um, in terms of the challenges that we face and also some of the current examples of what's going on. Um, I've got Equal by Carrie Gracie, which I had a chance to read. Um, I think it's an absolutely brilliant book. I think it's something uh, that every, I know it's really cliche, but every CEO and chairman of the board or whatever should be forced to read a book like that. Um, absolutely. Um, and the, the last one, but um, nevertheless, it was not necessarily actually, it's not a book that's even out, but it's one that I encourage you to really, really wait for or support if you can. Women Who Won by Ross Ball. Um, now, this is a book basically about really famous female leaders who have been completely ignored by history, like, uh, say, Benazir Bhutto, whatever, which is, you know, one, that's one name I'll give you, but I watched the video for this, um, and I was appalled, frankly, by the amount of women leaders who had a really significant part in shaping our history that I didn't know, and that I wouldn't have recognised as quickly as a Barack Obama or a Boris Johnson or a David Cameron. Um, there are a couple of exceptions to the name Angela Merkel um, I think now Jacinda Ardern although I don't think people knew about her that much before the coronavirus pandemic certainly not over here Um, and I think and I really hope that funding effort reaches um, its goal because I think something like that is absolutely the sort of book um, that can do tangible good uh, one very last thing, because I realise I've overstayed my welcome, <laughs> um, probably. Um, but the Butterfly Waltz by Julie Moylan is something I just can't wait to read. And I one thing I've really enjoyed is just immersing myself in these really rich and powerful reads. Um, some of which are also quite emotional and I don't do enough non-fiction fiction reading anyway Hmm. Um, but I just can't wait for this because Julie herself is somebody I've spoken to through Twitter and she's just such a worldly such a wise such an uncompromising but in a good way person and I really really cannot wait um frankly to to read this and to be sort of taken away because if there's one thing that lockdown taught me is the value of a good book and just digging yourself into that well i think you've um, made some uh, great points there uh, hopefully uh, when we next uh, have you uh, on again you can recommend some more books to our listeners <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very good me debating listeners thank you once again for uh, coming on the podcast william absolutely no problem thank you for listening to the podcast don't forget that you can subscribe on itunes spotify podbean or YouTube, you can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.